My name is Clancy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, They've taken away the form for me to read. <laughs> Through the grace of God and the power of this program, together with strong and involved sponsorship, it has not been necessary for me to take a drink or use any mind-altering chemicals since October 31st, 1958, and for this I'm very grateful. I want to say something to Don Cassini, wherever he's sitting. Where are you sitting, Don? Oh, you're standing up back there. Don, I want to, something you don't hear very often. It's nice to see you newer people staying active. I'm, uh, there's some seats here, Don, if you want to sit down. They're saving them for their friends, but they may not come. Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I was taught to fear and hate Ohio State. Because they've been nothing but trouble to us for as long as I can remember. But to show you that AAs made me flexible, I'm wearing my tie with the... Ohio State colors, gray and scarlet. I'm very glad to be here. I'm glad to, I want to thank the committee for inviting me. So I've had a good time here, met many old friends and some new friends. There are four or five people here who I've had the privilege of sponsoring over the year. This have come from different places to uh, wonder if I'm going to leave them anything in my will. And I, uh, it's been a good, I've enjoyed the speakers, all the speakers, and I uh, and we had, had a good dinner tonight. Uh, somebody whose uh, who's anonymity I'll protect, but his name is Norm, actually, <laughs> said there's a real good Texas steakhouse, and it's just three doors down the street. So I put on my little coat, and I went, and it went block after block after block. <laughs> Tell you, Norm, you're a goof. <laughs> but he won my heart by for paying by, by paying for my dinner, so I, I forgive you, Norm. <laughs> but I was thinking, I was walking down there, it was cold and dismal, and I was thinking to myself a little bit. I grew up in the Midwest, up in northern Wisconsin, and I said, and I was thinking, of a, I was walking, and I, in the distance, there's a, there must be some trains going by somewhere around here, because you can hear a whistle, train whistle. And I was, something, a memory I haven't popped in my mind for years, but I was... When I was about 14, I was uh, peddling papers in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I didn't do it very long, but I did it for a while. And I, my, I had a route up in the North Side Hill, and you had to walk up the North Side Hill and cross some train tracks and go up another little hill, and then you peddle the papers. And if you'd get there about 4.30, if you'd go up, start up the hill at 4.30, there'd be a train come through called the 400, which is a big one of the first big modern diesel trains in, in the era of steam engines that went from Minneapolis to Chicago, 400 miles in 400 minutes, they called it, and back and forth. And I remember you'd sit there, right about right where you waited, to, the station was down there and the train would stop and people were getting on and off, but right where you st- stood, waiting, freezing in the cold, was the, must have been the dining car. And I know several nights I looked through that window up there and see people, I was shivering outside and they had ladies in nice dresses and men in good-looking suits and sitting eating and having a drink and looking out the window and at that poor little waif down there with his papers. <laughs> Hello, little boy. <laughs> and I, I don't know where that train is going, but I want to be on it. You know, I just want to be on it. 
I want to be like that. I want to be grown up like that. And because uh, I was not a terribly happy camper, I had uh, I was raised in a very strict church, the Norwegian Lutheran Church. When I was 12 years old, my parents, 11 or 12, my parents had gotten a divorce. Now, it sounds odd in this day and age, but I'd been so shielded in this church, I had never, I had never known of a divorce until my parents got divorced. I'd never heard of it. Nobody ever got divorced, especially in our family. Nobody ever got divorced. And uh, I didn't know what to make of it. And I, in, I instinctively, without any training or background, instinctively did exactly the wrong thing. I would have, you know, it's just the sort of thing that I talk about to people now. Without even stop missing a beat. And I'd been doing pretty well. But I began playing my mother against my father to avoid any discipline. If my mother gave me discipline, I'd go to my father and tell her stories about, tell him stories about what she was doing. And if he got mean to me, I went to my mother. And if they both got mean to me, I went to my grandmother. In a small town, and divorces were so uncommon that teach, my dad was a long-time teacher in the school system. And the other teachers would try to take care of me. And I just got without structure in my life, 11 or 12. And I think probably, and it wasn't anybody's fault, and later on I understood what happened. But at the time I didn't. All I knew was that I look back at the time when I was turning 12 and 13 and as uh, was mentioned today, getting to that puberty period, I, uh, I had no, I had no uh, structure in my life. By the time I was 14, I was a, I'd gone from being an A student to being a C, an indifferent C student or D student. They'd call me and I'd say, well, ever since my parents divorced, they'd say, we understand, son, and let me go. It was just terrible. And by the, by the time I was 15, things were just kind of going to hell. And I I got a do, new set of friends, kind of the raggle-taggle people I would never used to run with. My good, my good friends, they didn't seem to like me much anymore because I was a different type. I, I was just unhappy. And uh, the Second World War came along, and I was 15, when I was 14, finally. When I was 15, I just thought there's nothing more to do. When I was in high school, I was now a beginning my, in my junior year, and uh, my grades had gone down. I was having difficulty as a junior in high school. I was, I'd hoped before that to get a scholarship to college because I came from kind of a poor family. And I, uh, I didn't know what to do. So everybody's talking about the war. So one day I told my mother I was going to go to Superior, Wisconsin, to visit my aunt because I was feeling bad, and she gave me bus fare and a little suitcase. And I took that, and I hitchhiked to San Francisco. Had no idea where the hell I was going. Had no idea how far it was. I just looked at the library, the school library, and page and a half doesn't seem bad, you know. <laughs> and some guy was going to Minneapolis. He gave me a ride. I said, now we're going to San Francisco. And he said, uh, well, stand outside here. And this, there's a the highway. It goes to San Francisco eventually. So I stood out there. And, and some guy stopped. He says, where are you going, kid? I said, San Francisco. He says, so am I. Hop in. And away we went. I thought, well, that's a good break. I'd never hitchhiked before. I didn't know, you know. And he was in the Navy. He was returning to his ship. And he had to get this car out the West Coast. And so he, I guess he picked me up just to have a lower companion to talk to. <laughs> and he was an officer. And we'd stop at night. We didn't have motels. And he'd stop in little trailer courts. And he'd get me a little bed. And I'd, he'd have a bed. And he'd buy my meals. And we just went on a date like this for days. And, you know, I, I thought nothing of it. Because I thought, I'd never hitchhiked. I thought that's the way it was when you hitchhiked. You you tell them where you're going, and they get you there, you know. <laughs> and I was telling them, and I remember going over the Sierras. I said, boy, I can't wait to get out there and kill Japs. <laughs> I was about this high and face full of pimples and a dumb, dumb kid. And he said, you know, I don't think there's much of a chance you're really going to 
you won't be able to get the Marine Corps because they really check the age pretty closely. You're only 50. I tell you what you do. They're really crying for merchant seamen. Why don't you go to the Coast Guard office on Wilshire or uh, Market Street? I'll show you how to get there. And uh, tell them you want to be in the Merchant Marine. Tell them you're 16. I think he'll give you seamen's papers. They're crying for seamen's papers. Okay. And I remember he dropped me off in the Oakland Mole. Mole. It's a kind of name for a pier there. And of all the memories of my life, one of the golden memories, I'd never been anywhere, never done anything. And early in the morning, 6 in the morning, he put me on this and bought me a little ticket on this ferry boat that went across San Francisco. And it was all foggy. You couldn't see anything. I got on there, I could smell these strange smells of the ocean. And I just was so excited and so scared. And we went across, and out of the fog came San Francisco, just these spires and these... Oh, Christ, it's just like Dorothy must have felt she saw Oz. She was like, oh, oh, and we got landed on the ferry building, they called it. And he told me to go out in front of there and go up Market Street. And I went around there. And, and Market Street at that time is a funny thing in San Francisco. Only old people remember this. There were two competing streetcar companies in San Francisco. And they both had streetcars on the main street, on Market Street. So there were two streetcars coming this way and two streetcars going that way. So there were four streetcars side by side. Oh, Piece of buildings, and I just and I walked up Mark Street and found the Coast Guard office, and they opened at eight, and I went in there, and I want to be a merchant seaman. And he said, "Here's an application, filled it out, put in 16, and handed it back." He said, "Oh, kid," he said, uh, "You know, you're only 16. <laughs> we have to have your parents' permission if you want to go." <clears throat> so I took it around the block, got my parents' permission. <laughs> I said, "Okay." And he filled out Siemens papers for me right there. No training, no nothing. He said, go down to the National Maritime Union. Told me how to get there on Montgomery Street. And uh, sign up. And I went down there with my little bag. Oh, God, it's exciting. I haven't thought about this for a long time. And I went down, and they had me. They were crying for merchants. They had me sign up for my union dues. They'd take the union dues out of my uh, first check, I guess. And it had a guy take me to the Embarcadero, where all the big ships were. Remember that? Oh. Jesus, exciting, and people coming and going, and ooh, ooh, horns out there. And, and I got on this ship, and I just barely made it because they were about to leave, and I guess that was the last body they could get on. And uh, away we went to the South Pacific. And I, I remember going by Treasure Island, and I said, that's where the World's Fair was last year. Ooh. <laughs> and underneath the Bay Bridge, it went by Alcatraz. I still remember my view of that, you know. Ooh. I knew Machine Gun Kelly was there. I was trying to spot him. <laughs> Underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh. But then the damn ship just kept going. And I noticed the earth was going out of sight. I, I think I had, in, had an intuitive feeling I, that I... This, Jesus, this is a very sad, touching story. Will you and your party please leave quietly, for Christ's sake? But I think I had an intuitive feeling that I had made the first in an endless series of career errors. <laughs> I sidled up to some guy that seemed to have gold braid on it. I, I really appreciate this opportunity, but I, we had a big English test Monday, and I should get back, really. <laughs> He told me to luck off, and uh, 
Some other guy said, go to your foxhole. And I didn't know what a foxhole was, but it sounded ominous to me, I'll tell you. Says, I said, where's that? He said, right in there. Mm-hmm. And I went in this door, of course, foxhole is where the crew sleeps on a ship. And I was one of the deck crew. There were three watches on a ship. There's the first, second, and third watch. And I was in one of the four men on the deck watch on the first watch. And I went in this room. I didn't know where the hell I was. And there were three of the worst type of people that any small, frightened Norwegian Lutheran kid can ever be with. And these kind of people are called men. <laughs> and they looked at me, and they had a very... I couldn't understand. There seemed to be some a chill in the air, kind of. A... So I told them some jokes that used to go over pretty good in study hall, and they just... <laughs> Why don't you shut your goddamn mouth? <laughs> and they showed me how I got, I got in my bunk, and that ship was moving around. And I found out later, but not very long later, the reason they were so upset, not upset, was because I was supposed to do one-fourth of the work of their crew, you know. And when they saw me, they realized they were each going to do three and a third for the rest of that balance. Because you know? I was going to... And I lay in my bunk and just moving around, and God, it's getting sick, kind of, these... And these guys were talking about dirty things. I just couldn't bear it. I, I really wanted my mother. That's what I wanted. <laughs> but I didn't want to say anything and ruin my image. So I just... <laughs> and they got talking about what they'd been doing the four days they had been in San Francisco. I'd only been there about three hours. But they'd been there four days. And they were talking about... And they were talking about dirty things that you don't talk about if you're Lutherans. I'll tell you if you don't. And uh, I was shocked. I knew then... Not, not only is it bad, but I'm here with Catholics. <laughs> I'd never seen any close-up, but I recognized the black hair. <laughs> and they were talking about sex, and I was you know, humiliated. I don't want to give the wrong impression. Even at the age of 15 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I'd had sex. But I'd been apprehensive, and I'd been afraid, and I'd been alone. <laughs> and these... Uh, these guys were talking about doing it with people. <laughs> I felt like saying, pervert, pervert. <laughs> and after a while, I just felt so bad. After a while, one of these guys went over to his sea bag, took out a bottle of whiskey. And he, I had never, to the best of my knowledge, I had never been in the same room with a bottle of whiskey at the age of 15, which sounds again incredible now, but that's the way it was. And he went to one of his guys' friends, he said, I'll snort. And I, yeah. <laughs> Got a little snort. <laughs> Looked at me and he had a very unpleasant look on his face. Now that I'm more sophisticated, I would call it a demeaning look or a supercilious look or an intimidating look. But then I only knew pleasant looks and unpleasant looks. That was an unpleasant look. He said, How about you, Junior? You think you're man enough for a little snort? And he shoved that bottle in my face. And I remember, you know, there's a phenomenon in sports. I used to be an old sports writer, so I speak a little knowledgeably of this. There's a phenomenon of sports, and certainly everyone in Ohio State is familiar with it. It's called choking. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing personal. I'm not really a Wolverine. Get the car started, Keith. They'll be out. But there's a phenomenon called choking, and everybody knows that is when you try so hard you can't do it. When you, 
when you're waiting for that third strike, you just, what would he do? And, oh, shit. <laughs> or you drop a punt or just throw the basketball in, an air ball or some hideous thing. And that same thing happens in the real world, too, you know, the real world where you, uh, I get so emotional I couldn't talk. I couldn't answer this man. I could just hear my mind saying, how dare you do that? How dare you stick a whiskey in my face? I'm a Norwegian Lutheran. Norwegian Lutherans don't drink whiskey. Even if they did, I wouldn't drink whiskey because I promised my mother and grandmother I'd never drink whiskey. And I just don't do that. I could just feel my pimples standing up. Just... <laughs> and I just, I just wanted to shriek at him. And, I, and he said, how about it, Junior? You think you're man enough? And I, I heard a voice say, Goddamn right. <laughs> I, I realized I was a little weak under pressure. So that day in that ship, or the first bottle I was ever close to, I took a drink of whiskey. And it burned my mouth, and it burned my throat, and it burned my stomach, and it burned my throat, and it burned my mouth, and burned his shirt the last I saw him. <laughs> and what I remember most about that, I don't remember exactly, of course, but I remember... I remember his sneering laughter. <laughs> Get the bottle away from you little son of a bitch. <laughs> I don't, to this day, I don't know anything that's more intimidating to weak, frightened people than public humiliation when you can't do anything about it. Boy, I'll tell you, to this day, that's why I, among other reasons, I asked people I sponsored not to have handguns because I watched people and a moment's insanity, just bang, but they wouldn't do it if they had to go to the next house together. Just... Amazing thing. It takes a lot to get it done sometimes, but it sometimes happens. But I, uh, I thought later there wasn't a thing I could do, but I didn't dare hit him. I thought later there was one thing I might have done. I'm glad I didn't think of it because that would have thrown me overboard. I might have, I might have said, lean over, big boy. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> yeah, give Just give him one in the old eye. But among us, among, I just hated that. And all the way across the Central Pacific, every day when nobody was around, I'd sneak into that sea bag and take a drink of that whiskey. And I'd throw it up and I'd have to wipe it up. I so desperately wanted to be accepted by these men. Keith talked about it today, the, the need for acceptance. And we've all known that feeling very well. And I took a drink and, and I'd throw it up. And the next day I'd come back and I just hated it. But God, I just, I didn't know what to do. And we came into Pearl Harbor. And it was still early in the Second World War. And they're still digging some ships up off the bottom. And uh, guys were up there looking. I was down there taking a drink of that crap. I took one more drink of that. I remember that day. It was the day before my 16th birthday. I took a drink and I hated it. Burned my throat and burned my, stu- burned my stomach and stayed there. And then it turned out I couldn't breathe. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. I thought, why do people drink this? Oh, gosh. I want my mother. Then all of a sudden, something strange happened. I found myself feeling significantly better. And I realized why people, don't, why people drink whiskey. It makes, you, if you, it makes you feel better. You know, I, uh, I've always envied these people. I hear them once in a while talk, and they have such insights to themselves. They have such understanding. I remember hearing a guy say one time, when I took that first drink, it's as though I'd gone into a new garden, a garden of experiences with many new flowers and fruits to be plucked and enjoyed over the coming years until it would be necessary to leave that garden and come to this wonderful program. I remember saying, God damn it, I never knew that, you know. 
all I ever learned, if you don't puke and you can breathe, it makes you feel better. That's all I ever learned. I learned to smoke on that ship. Nobody that I knew smoked, but I, I smoked and puked and smoked and puked and smoked and puked. So one day I smoked, and I, and I smoked two and a half, three packs a day every day for the next 45 years. Except when I was on shock treatments and couldn't have matches. But mostly of the time I smoked. And I'll tell you something. Near the end of my smoking was the beginning of this hideous assault by this society on smokers. We've been smoking for hundreds of years, and all of a sudden it's just like, you know, you're some kind of criminals. In California, you can't smoke in a public building. Anywhere. You stop that. Yeah. I got my gang with me tonight. I, uh, I had to stop smoking because they took a part of my throat, but I'm still a smoker by nature. It still offends me to see people who've smoked for 25 years who suddenly stop smoking, and a week later they're saying, <coughs> someone's lit a cigarette in the next block. <laughs> people used to say to me, with all this medical knowledge going on, why do you still smoke? And I have an answer for you people when they ask you, that they will never ask you again. How's this? Here's the answer. Well, it is my feeling that one of these days I'll open a newspaper and there will be a market for phlegm and I'll be rich. <laughs> now, is that worth the price of the registration right there, huh? I remember years ago, there'd be smoking sections on a plane. The first, the back, two-thirds of the plane, and the first third of the plane would be the non-smoking section. And I couldn't wait to get through those with their little blue lips and their... <laughs> now I sit with them, but I don't talk to them. <coughs> I've had a cigarette now for 11 years, and I, uh, I think if someone would come up to me and say, you have a terminal illness and you have two weeks to go... I don't know. I didn't mean to make this a lecture on smoking. I hate people to do that. I want to talk about. I want to talk about drugs. Since I brought out Prozac, I still smoke, but I don't care. <clears throat> Come on, this is serious. But I stayed on those ships, and uh, I drank. I became a terrible alcoholic. I just drank and got drunk sometimes and made people laugh at me. And I was kind of, I was good for them on that ship, too, because I could kind of their pet coon or something, you know, some goof, you know. Hey, kid, get down the engine room. Tell them we need a left-handed wrench. <laughs> hey, kid, go up tell the captain we need a, we need a, uh, <laughs> can't think of the word. Yeah, no, no, not a bucket of steam. What the hell did they send me up there? Well, tell the captain we need, uh, I don't know, some, yeah, like a bucket of steam. <laughs> and I, I just went for laughs. But later I got a little smarter, and I went on another trip, and I got to be 17. I went in the Navy when I was old enough. And I served in the Navy, and, and I was 
overseas at the end of the war at the Naval Hospital up in Northern California. And they operated on me for something, and I, uh, at the end of the, the war was over now, the gray ladies were trying to close her down, you know, a little bit, and they came around and had a lot of tests. They gave everybody a test to see what they should do. And I've always been very good on tests because I'm a reader. And so I did this test very well, and I had no idea what it was for, and they came around, oh, Clancy, we're so proud. You got the highest mark in the whole hospital, and, and uh, the Armed Forces Institute is going to award you an honorary high school diploma. You know, and I'm still a beginning junior in high school. I didn't think much it made a difference to me. Was there any money came with it? Nothing. But I thought about that later. What a great turning spot in my life. Because after the war, I went back to Wisconsin. If I wouldn't have got that result, I would have had to go back and be a junior in high school. And I was much too grown up and slick for that. I don't know what the hell that would have become of me. Instead, I went to college after the war with the first class of veterans in 1946. In fact, last fall, we had a reunion at Wisconsin of the beginning class of 1946, which was the, the most exotic beginning class ever. Because all these veterans around, there's all kinds of, I mean, guys who were going to college who never would have gone to college except for the GI Bill. I mean, 35-year-old freshmen, <laughs> tough guys sitting next to 17-year-old freshman girls. and All right, honey, you want to study with me a while? <laughs> a lot of girls got knocked up that year, I'll tell you. I don't judge them, I just tell you, I, I, I didn't have the technique to score myself. <laughs> but anyway, I uh, went to school and I married a girl later in college and uh, my technique was good enough once. And uh, I married this girl and, and she was, I should have realized she had black hair and had black eyes and lovely and I thought, God, you don't, you don't see girls like that in the Norwegian Lutheran Church. You, they're all blonde, brown hair, blonde, or blue-eyed, and sickening. And here's this exotic, and she, she worked her wiles on me, and we got married. Turned out she was a Catholic. And my grandmother said, oh, sonny, she said, don't marry a Catholic. They're nice, Charlotte's a nice girl, but it'll change your life. I said, Grandma, that's pre-war bigotry. This is the post-war. We're all living together as citizens in a free world now. Now, Grandma, I know you mean well, but... So I married her, and my grandmother was right. Uh, it's not that she was a bad girl, just the opposite. She was a good girl. I don't know if some of you, I'm sure, know. They never tell Lutheran boys this. But if you marry a good Catholic girl, a good Catholic girl, you are about to have a big family, a big family. And I didn't plan on I became a national distributor of small Catholics. Just... <laughs> I was like a... Fawn in a forest fire. Just it was a terrible. <laughs> so I got out of school. And I became a sports writer, but I had got more kids, so I'd have more babies. I mean, more children, more jobs. So I got a job, and pretty soon in advertising and public relations. And over the years, I had public relations and advertising and all these things, and uh, had more children. Lived in different cities, and all these years I drank alcohol. I never thought a thing about it. It was a thing we all did in college. We're all veterans. We all see how much we could drink. Out in the world, I ran with drinking people. Seemed like everybody I knew drank because I ran with drinking people. And all these years, and I'll tell you something, it may sound terrible if you're new, but alcohol is the best friend I've ever had. I've never had a better friend than alcohol. Your dearest friends come and go, your lovers come and go, cities come and go, jobs come and go, but a few drinks, boy, wherever you are, it just makes a difference. It gives you the edge. And I love drinking. It's a I just love drinking. And all these years I drank. And sometimes I drank too much and sometimes I 
got what I thought was a little bizarre. They thought I was bizarre. And it did seem to be a bit bizarre. When I got into psychoanalysis later, I discovered why that was. Because until I got into psychoanalysis, I didn't know this. But I had been repressed as a child. <laughs> and my natural expansiveness had been contracted and compacted. And alcohol broke me through these psychic chains. And sometimes I overshot. But it wasn't my fault. It was just a lack of nurturing, really. I remember explaining that to several cops. They said, oh, horse shit, you know. <laughs> but I, a uh, friend of our family finally sent me to an AA meeting. He said, you ought to go there. I didn't know what it was. He said, go over there. Guys who used to drink a lot, they don't seem to drink so much anymore. I said, okay, I'll go over there for the hell of it. So I went to my first AA meeting in 1949. That's a long time ago. A lot of you little snots weren't even born. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> And uh, it was, you know, like you've heard it described many times, a bunch of nice old people, gray-haired old fools sitting around. And I don't know what they were saying, but it sounded like they were saying things like, uh, I stayed drunk around the clock for 10 years. One day I walked through that door, and I put the plug in the jug. By God, I've just never felt so wonderful. Even then, I remember thinking, why don't you tell your face? But they were not... It was nice. I went there for a little while, but they, I wasn't really like them. And I got to school. I, later on, I got acted bizarrely. I went to psychoanalysis. and I read books. I did a lot of things. I learned a great deal about myself. I made breakthroughs. In psychoanalysis, as our friend was talking this afternoon, it's a great breeding ground for victimization. Because you can really see how you've been hurt all along. I learned so much about my childhood. If I knew then what I know now, I would have formed adult children of Norwegian Lutherans. (laughs) Could hire a couple codependents and sit around and be pissed off every week. Just (laughs) always. But I drank and I went to psychoanalysis. I did all these things and all these years. And I had some ups. I had some. I had some flashes of ability, and I did quite well. And other times I had seemed to have emotional explosions, and I did bad, and I'd get drunk sometimes. And it seemed, I look over those years, and it seemed to me one of the recurring feelings of those years is this, finding myself in a new city, holding my resume, and getting it polished up, prepared to go into someplace, and to uh, explain that the last place where I worked, I had this, these samples of my work and stuff I wrote, and... Uh, but they were so square, they didn't really understand it. But I know a sharp guy like you would. And uh, I'd get a job, and I'd bring my wife and children in. I was from the last town, and my wife would get pregnant pretty soon, and we'd have a baby, and uh, i worked there. And, and pretty soon, after the novelty wore off, pretty soon I'd, I'd get kind of bored. I didn't like the job so much anymore, and people were screwing me around, and uh, I was drinking a little more heavily, and my emotions were out of whack, and the kids weren't turning out right. And Eventually I'd get nervous and upset, and eventually I'd have an explosion of some kind, drinking or emotional, I'd quit my job, screw you, you can't do that to me, and on and on, the next thing I knew, I'd be in a new town, getting that resume together, and doing it all over again, I did this several times, and I always bounced up, and I remember one day, I found myself in a situation, that a person of my background, and ability, and experience, and intelligence, cannot be in, I found myself, being two big guys throwing me out of a Skid Row mission in Los Angeles, where I didn't know anybody. And I said, and stay out of here, you damn bum. 
And I couldn't believe it. I tried to explain to him. I, I'm not a damn bum. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I helped write, the L.C. Delmer ads for the Borden Company, we're running that very week in Life and Time and Saturday Evening Post. I've had my picture in the New York Times for achievement. How many people do you know have had their picture in the New York Times for their achievements? But it's hard to explain these things in midair. You know, you're sorry. <laughs> and unfortunately, about three weeks before that, I'd had my front teeth kicked out in the Phoenix jail by some guy because I had been in there, I just got it rested overnight, no big deal, but I was in there, I woke up about three in the morning, so sick, and I vomited, and I vomited on the guy's bunk. And he, unfortunately, had been there a while and was healthy and strong, and he says, you vomited on my bunk, Sam Bradford. I was laying on the floor, he gave me a couple of kicks. He kicked my front teeth, I don't know if he meant to, but I remember that morning, it was one of the few mornings I was ever very grateful that I'd spent those thousands of dollars in psychoanalysis, because I was almost instantly able to identify his problem. <laughs> I remember thinking, this son of a bitch is overreacting. <laughs> so I was out there trying to tell these guys the midnight missions, and I had no front teeth. I wasn't hitting those consonants quite as cleanly as out of like. But I stood outside that mission, and there was a cold rain falling, and I suddenly realized it's all gone. It's all gone. It can't happen to me, but it's all gone. And I stood there, didn't know what to do. I've thought many times since. If some old guy would have come over to me that morning and said, you know, Slim, you're getting close to death. You're down near 100 pounds. Your teeth are gone. You can't replace them. You've lost your children. You'll never see them again. You've lost your wife. You'll never see her again. You've lost your career. You're but this boy genius, and you can't even get a job doing anything. You've lost your clothing. All your clothing you got left is on your back, and it's wet from the rain. Your own mother, you're an only child, and she's not allowed to accept a collect phone call from you because your, your stepfather is so tired of watching you get her hopes up and then dash him again and get her hopes up and smash him again. Why don't, now, you've been going to AA for almost 10 years off and on. Why don't you just go, to, go back to AA and tell him you're an alcoholic and do a good job? And if a man would have come over to me that morning and said that, I'd have had to say, if my life depended on it, which it did, I'd have had to say, but you don't understand. It is not really the way it looks. I know I've got some bad troubles, and there's something sick about inside of me, but I'm not really an alcoholic. I know that because I've been going to A for a long time. I know I'm not an alcoholic. And if he had said, well, prove you're not an alcoholic, I wouldn't have been able to do that because I wouldn't have had the objectivity to be able to stand back and, and identify it, what the problems was. But I know now, because over the years I've learned a great deal about myself here by uh, the use of AA. If you're some, some of the new people here, and I think, oh, good, here's a place where we come and study ourselves. Not true. You never learn anything about studying yourself. We've all come here st studying ourselves till we're ready to turn blue. That's the problem. You know where you learn about yourself? And it sounds so strange, it's almost impossible to, to credit. I've learned about myself by working with others. It seems just incredible. But there's a certain level at which all of us are just about the same all over the world. And if you listen, you can eventually hear yourself coming out of their mouth. You can hear how you sound. And what that emotion in yourself, you couldn't identify, why that's it. That's that one. And on and on, you learn little by little by little. 
and re it's remarkable how much you can learn about yourself. But over the years, I learned a long time ago why I'm an, I knew I wasn't an alcoholic for a very simple reason. Because I knew what an alcoholic was, and I'm not that. Very simple. So the question is, what's an alcoholic? Well, everybody in this room knows what an alcoholic is. Non-alcoholics know. Newcomers. Anybody knows. Alan knows what an alcoholic is. It's a person who, when they drink, they seem to drink too much, and they get in trouble, their lives get screwed up, their emotions get in pain, they get driven to some place like AA, A gets them sober, straightens out their life, cleans up their act, and they live progressively pretty much more comfortably from then on. And I know that's true because I went to AA all over the country intermittently for years, and I heard people talk about it and discuss it in meetings, and I believed what they said. I always believed what I heard in AA. I have never known a long-term drinker who does not believe AA works. I, have, I mean a man who is still drinking. I have never known a long-term slipper who could not stay sober, who would not tell you AA works. I, in my days of cynicism or mock cynicism, whatever it was, have found myself sitting in the back row of meetings with other people, three or four other jerks like me, and afterwards going across the street and drinking. It's kind of a defiance. And discussing amongst ourselves how AA really works. But the, the catch point is this. It works for people like that. It doesn't work for me. My problem is different. It is not like that. My problem is not really alcohol. And I knew my problem wasn't really alcohol because I'd examined it a lot. In a way, I guess I used to think I'm kind of like a reverse alcoholic, like a negative to a positive, like 180 degrees different. It looks the same, but it's, I drink like an alcoholic, I get in trouble like an alcoholic, I talk like an alcoholic, and I can persuade anybody when it serves my purpose that I'm really an alcoholic. But only I know I'm not because of one thing. Unlike alcoholics, it is when I stay sober and try to be good, that is when my emotions get out of whack. And that's when my life gets painful. And the longer I try, the worse it gets. Until the day comes, I just can't stand it, and I have to have a couple of drinks. And I don't drink to, because I'm a drinker. I drink to feel the way alcoholics seem to feel when they get sober. They feel better and they feel complete. And I feel empty and alone and desperate. So I know my problem is not really alcohol. My problem is that thing I used to hear in Chapter 3 all the time. To try to find the combination of drinking beer only, perhaps, or changing from scotch to brandy, or only drinking at home, or never drinking. I tried these things, all these sorts of things again and again. And then we laugh at that paragraph in Chapter 3. Look at the dumb things they do. Why do people do that? For a very simple reason. And I'm sure we've all done most of it and other things that are not listed there for this reason. You come to the point where you realize being sober, I can't stand being sober, and yet drinking is getting me in trouble. So I've got to find a way to some combination, some balance, something. Maybe if I read spiritual literature, maybe if I exercise, maybe I, I don't know. But no old man came over and talked to me that morning on the street. I just stood there in the rain. It was cold. And I happened to think about a week before that, someone had, I'd seen someone in a bar or someplace. He said, you know, you need help. And he dropped me off the AA club at Wilshire and Fairfax. And so I thought, I didn't know where that was, but I knew it was somewhere. And I walked there. And I said to the guy, where's Wilshire and Fairfax? He said, why don't you go to Wilshire doesn't come through. You have to go over to Hill Street, then over to Wilshire, then turn west. And I... It was cold and wet, but I walked. And I walked, found Wilshire, and I turned west, and I 
had no idea how far it was. I walked. I counted later in my car. It was 72 blocks. That's, you know, I couldn't do that sober. But when you're desperate, it's amazing what you can do when you're desperate. And I finally got near this club, and I saw it, and then I thought, oh, Jesus. It all came flooding back. I hadn't really remembered the club. I just remember I'd been there. When I saw the club, I remembered. I'd been in there drunk and denouncing them and ridiculing them and telling how lucky they were not to be intelligent and how just how I envied them, their simplicity. And, and when I went in, they weren't glad to see me, and I wasn't glad to see them, actually. But at least I was out of the rain, and I hung around that club that day. And it was, not only it was a bad place, not only was it a club, but it was full of AA fanatics. I don't know anything more distressing to an intelligent slipper than to be thrust among AA fanatics. God, they're a dreary bunch, you know. For example, now I'm not a mooch. I've never been a mooch, unless I've had to be. But, I mean, I'm like a lion. I don't kill for sport, just for food. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sure I give them, I tell them, uh, you know, I, I've lost everything through alcohol. They'd like to hear that kind of talk, you know. And uh, I have no, no place to stay. I have these wet clothes on. That's all I have. I have nothing to eat. And I'm rather sick. And I, I have no place to go and no place to stay. No dry clothes. I've lost my family. I, I'm sure if I had a place to stay and perhaps a few dollars, I could really work this program and, and use these steps. Well, that's a pretty clear call, wouldn't you think? You know. You know what AA fanatics say? They say, go to a lot of meetings, work the steps, it'll all work out. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the answer to that automatically is, oh, gee, sir, you're number one with me. (laughs) But I hung around that damn club, and at night they had a meeting, and I ate about four pounds of cake. I just... And then it got to be closing time. It was still raining. I didn't know where to go. I, I said to the old guy locking up, I had no place to go. He says, halfway down the parking lot there, there's an old green Mercury, 49. used to be owned by a guy named Joel Quinn. He dumped it there about six months ago. It doesn't run. Sleep in that. That'll keep you going. That's really wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I slept in that car, and I thought to myself that night, this must be the nadir. This must be the bottom of my life. But I was wrong. <laughs> that came later and the next morning I got up there was a morning meeting on a Sunday and I ate about four pounds of cake and I spent all day there and went to the meeting that night and ate about some more cake and the next slept in a goddamn car and got up the next morning just on and on just went on for days I, I really I remember thinking I wonder I wonder if I'm dead and this is hell I just I can't believe it and I had no idea then or thereafter for a long time that would be my sobriety date. Because I didn't intend for it to be, didn't want it to be, had no intention of staying sober, didn't want AA, knew all about AA, didn't like it. I don't suppose anybody who ever slipped as long as I did and who now stayed sober as long as I have, who wouldn't naturally look back and wonder, what was different this time? What changed this time? What was the difference? Not really so much for my own information, but I'd like to know it so I would be able to... Convey it to others, because people, because of my long slipping, send me long-term slippers. They send me from other states sometimes on the bus. Go see that client, so he'll help you. <laughs> yeah. And the way Sally sent Keith, you know, 
Have you seen my helmet? Don't have your goddamn helmet. But anyway, I've, I've often looked back and think, you know, I wish I knew, I wish I knew that I could convey to long-term slippers. You know, some, one of the things that distresses me sometimes, I go to meetings, and you, you've heard it too, people say, I was having a terrible time in AA, I just couldn't accept it. And one day I heard old Fred say, da, 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 some dumb thing, and it all fell into place, and since then my life has been just getting better. <laughs> Oh, Jason, what a heartache, you know. I never heard such a sentence. It would be nice to know it, though. These old guys come in my office and they said you'd help me. It would be nice to be able to say, yes, I will. Just remember this. Never mind if the horse is blind. Keep loading the wagon. <laughs> oh, that's it, sir. God bless you. Thank you. Sometimes these old bag ladies there come into me, hustle a little dough. Can you help me, Mr. Clancy? Yes, I can. <laughs> Wet birds don't fly at night. <laughs> oh, I'm going to become a homemaker and a mother. <laughs> but there is no sentence. I don't know of any sentence. A long time ago, I became, had to come to a reluctant conclusion. I have nothing. I have no way to help to make anybody stay sober. And it's so frustrating because I would give because I know their feelings exactly. It's very similar. I, it's very similar to an analogy that I've sometimes talked about a few years ago. One day in my backyard, I was trying to teach my grandsons on my driveway back here, John and Joe, how to ride a bicycle. And they'd fall down. They'd get up and I'd have them ride again. They'd fall down and skinning their arms and blue bloody nose. And I would do anything if I could take the fall for them. I wish I could fall down for them because I really felt so bad. You know, we don't want to do this anymore, Grandpa. Yes, you do. You just don't know it. You know, just we do. <laughs> At the end of the day, they could not ride a bicycle, and I felt like a terrible person. And a few days later, we tried again. Eventually, they got they got a gift from out of nowhere that I'm sure most of the people in this room have, and there isn't a person who can tell me how they got it. And it's just this: so out of nowhere, suddenly have the gift of balance. You now can ride a bicycle, and you can ride it for the rest of your life. And you can ride a motorcycle if you know how to do it. But you cannot give that ability to someone for whom you would give your life. Everybody's got to get on their own bicycle and fall down, I guess, apparently. But I, I wish I had that ability. And I've looked back and thought many times, what was different this time? Did I really want to stop drinking? Was that it? Was this the time I really had enough? And the answer, of course, is no. I had no desire to stop drinking. I'd only tried to stop drinking once in my life. And I gave it everything I had. And I had a very good reason, because I was drunk and got arrested overnight. I never did be jailed. I was, in, I was overnight in some damn jail for some something or other. And that night was the wrong night, because my son died when I was in the jail. And they had to come down and tell me in the morning, oh, I felt so terrible. I just knew if I'd have been home, this wouldn't have happened. And on and on. I just... And we buried him. Better put my hand on We didn't actually bury him in northern Wisconsin, because you, you don't bury people in this climate in the wintertime. You put them in a mauso mausoleum, then you... Uh, in the springtime, when the ground thaws, you bury him. But I put my hand in his little casket, and I said, John Immelslin, this will never happen to one of my children again. I'll guarantee you. Then I went to work in Texas. I started down there, and I was working down there in an advertising agency, and 
and uh, I was getting along pretty good, and it was all behind me. I felt bad about drinking, and I was watching it, controlling it, and wanted to do it. I'm remorseful, boy. I, I do good. And eventually my family came in, and my drinking got a little more intense, and I started to get a little irritable. I needed more drinking. And finally, one day, uh, my wife said to me, remember about John? Uh, you don't want that to ever happen again. I said, yeah, that's right. And I stopped drinking, and I didn't drink again, and uh, I was full of gratitude to remind me, and I had Boy, it's going to be different now, and it's nice to everybody. I learned my lesson. But what happens to me, something I couldn't explain, I couldn't identify it then, I can identify it now. As the days went by, the irritation started, and the irritability, and the intolerance, and the uh, nervousness. And uh, pretty soon the job I liked, I didn't like that so well. I didn't like the people, they seemed dumb. And, uh, I didn't like the town very much, and the wind blew too much for me. It was hot. And, uh, the children I was doing it for couldn't sometimes bear to be in there. Don't, don't take so much noise. Go to your room. I'm, I'm sorry, but Daddy's not feeling well today. Just, I need to drink so bad I could scream. But when you've taken a vow in your son's casket, you can't drink. So I got to the point. I just, I was on the edge of insanity, I believe. And one day my wife took the children to church again, and I, I just pulled the car in the garage and hooked up hose and the exhaust pipe, turned the motor, and went to sleep and died. I didn't know what to do. Can't drink. Can't say so. And uh, some neighbor was watching us, noticed I didn't come out, and he leisurely walked over and found me dead in the car. I could have been dead very long, apparently, but he pulled me out and beat on my chest and breathed in my mouth, and they rushed me to the hospital and examined me, oxygenated me, determined I was seriously emotionally ill, moved me to a high-security locked ward where they examined me some more and determined I was a schizophrenic with paranoid tendencies and committed me for an indefinite period up to the rest of my life to the Texas State Insane Asylum at Big Spring, Texas. Now, that's how I get when I stay sober, folks. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's not really much of a goal to shoot for, I'll tell you. I was there about two weeks, and I was feeling a little better then, and I escaped. I've told this a lot of times, you know, I, he said it was an escape-proof hospital. I said, I didn't think so, and I got followed way through the door and over a fence, and I was gone. And there's only one problem. It is an escape-proof hospital, but you don't know until you get out, because... I don't know if you've ever been to West Texas, but they could see you running for three days out there. Just... <laughs> and you feel like such a boob in your white bathrobe, you know. Just... <laughs> well, there goes that little Yankee some bitch now. <laughs> and they snatched me back and gave me a two or three months of intensive electric shock therapy. And once you've had that, you never run much after that. You just... I come up and he says, what's your name, boy? I don't know. Check with the desk. <laughs> the next, that Christmas, they saw my record that I had staged a grand opera at the University of Texas, so they gave me, I was coming out of my shot treatment, so they let me direct the Christmas pageant at the Texas State Nuthouse that year. It wasn't a very complex production. It's a, the director's main job was trying to hold the three wise men off the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Get back, Lamar. <laughs> well, the next year, the next year, as I was working around that hospital, I suddenly realized, you know, this is going to be a long time. This, this could look bad on my resume. Yeah. Year after year in the Texas Insane Asylum. But by a stroke of luck, that year they put in the first alcoholic ward in the state of Texas, experimentally in the Big Spring State Hospital. And it was run by an AA. And once I saw that, I had him. 
because I could go over there and pretend to be an alcoholic, give all the symptoms, all the things he wanted to hear. And he had me move from the psychiatric ward to the alcoholic ward. And I, uh, a couple months later, I was released as a recovered alcoholic. And I never had another drink until I ran out of Thorazine. <laughs> but I, uh, I learned my lesson. I was afraid. I was signed out to my wife, and she had to write a report on me every week. That makes a little tension around the house, you know. <laughs> Don't you think you better take the garbage out? Yes, I do. I'm only sorry I didn't think of it, honey. Someday, someday, bitch. Then I went to Dallas, got a really good job at Tracy Locke, the largest advertising agency. Everybody knew I learned my lesson. I was doing well, doing fine. I brought my family and my wife got pregnant, doing well. And I started drinking again, but controlling it now. And all of a sudden, I lost control. I didn't know why. I couldn't believe it. And one day, finally, my wife took the children and left. And uh, I never, that's the first time they ever ran away. I was ran away. They didn't run away. And they, I never knew where they went. And the next thing I knew, I was, I knew she must have turned me in. They were going to bring me back that nut house and give me shock treatment. So I got how to get out of there. Next thing I knew, I was in El Paso trying to find some old people. I'd try to hustle. Next thing I knew, I was in the Phoenix drunk tank getting my teeth kicked out. Next thing I knew, I was outside of a mission. The next thing I knew, I was in an A8 club taking crap from people who shouldn't be allowed to shine my shoes. <laughs> so I didn't want to stop drinking. That wasn't my goal in life, stop drinking. I've often thought, I've said this before, but I should say it one more time. It irritates me to think that that psychiatrist in Texas examined me and determined I was a schizophrenic, a dual personality. If I could, I'd like to go back to some now and find him now, and he must be about 90 now. I could move him around pretty good. You know, just, hey, you quack! <laughs> Diagnosing me as a dual personality, for Christ's sake. If I could have got my personalities down to two, I'd have made it. Yeah, right? <laughs> My problem has always been this crowd that gathers in my head at the drop of a hat. Let's get out of here. Don't think we can. What do you think? I don't know. Let's look at you. <laughs> Years ago, I used to hear people today say things like, I don't think the program's enough for me. I, I may need group therapy. <laughs> Not me. Just go for a ride alone in my car. That's what's so good about alcohol. Alcohol reduces it to one voice. It may be a bad voice, but it's one voice. Why don't you quit your job and punch that bastard in the face? Okay. And then later try to describe that to your loved ones, why you did that. Oh, why do you, you know we need the money. Shut up. I look back and I was trying to think, why did I want to stay sober? Why did I stay sober? And then the answer I, comes to me again and again, has for many years, a strange answer, it sounds strange. But you know, of all the emotions I've had in my life, and I've had a lot of emotions, and everyone in this room has. You know, we talk about having special emotions, alcoholic emotions. There's no such thing as alcoholic emotions, really. They're all human emotions in, in a very immature state. When I get angry in the freeway, it's the same way the Pharaoh of Egypt got angry at the Hebrews, you know. <laughs> All the emotions. If you ever want to see alcoholic emotions, stop by a schoolyard someday and watch the children play. 
Mine, mine. I love you. I hate you. <laughs> they just haven't learned to conceal them yet like we have. But of all the emotions I've had, I think the worst emotion I can describe. Thank you. It's emotion that I'd call a, uh, it's a mixture between desperation and, uh, and depression. Just this terrible, terrible. And it almost immobilizes me. It's someone I get it. I, and over the years, I, I look back over the years, uh, my, right in my inventory, I saw it, my bad times always came in the fall. Maybe some other people had this fall. It's just sad, low. It starts off as a sad feeling, then a desperation feeling. And my answer to it has always been the same. You drink. You drink, nothing, I mean, drink anyway, but I drink, can try to cut it. And if that doesn't work, eventually, you have to run away. Now, there's nothing wrong with a 15-year-old boy running away. But when you're a father and husband, you shouldn't be running away and, and not being mad at anybody. Give them all my money, give them everything I got. I got to get away for a while. I'm thinking I'm going crazy here. I'll think I'm going to get a new job and I'll have my resume in a new town doing it again. And uh, run away. In fact, when I was sober, when I was sober about... 10 months, I'd gone through some terrible ups and downs, but autumn came. And now I not only had the ups and downs of sobriety that I couldn't stand, but here it came, that terrible feeling. And I'll tell you, it's come to me a lot of times in sobriety, in gradually diminishing. Now it comes and I recognize it, almost part of my mind said, well, here it is, let's just laugh at it and keep on going. Yeah. But it came terrible. And I didn't know what to do because I know I'm going to have to drink or run away. And I, I can't, I'll never ever have a chance again. I'm not doing very well now, but I'll, it's the best I've done for a long time. And I found an answer to it that I would, that year, that I would not recommend to you if you have a better answer. But I'll tell you, if you're desperate, if you're desperate, you can't stand it. I'll tell you an answer that I, it worked for me. For two or three days, I stayed in bed with the covers over my head. Just, I didn't dare get up. Late at night, I'd go out and eat sometimes. I'd go back in my bed and just sleep and cower there. So I knew if I get up and go out, it's going to be all over. Now, I wouldn't, as I say, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but at that particular period of time, that's all I could do. But I, this desperation, is when it hits me, it's just so terrible among other emotions. And I've had it again and again. And I, uh, you know, there's no way to deal with it. Because it has nothing to do with alcohol. In fact, alcohol is the only thing that cuts it. And how can you call that an alcohol problem? I, you know, in the last few years, I've been sober a long time, and I've been active a long time. And I've been continuing to be active, so I've had the opportunity to do a lot of things that many of you, most of you probably haven't had the opportunity to do yet. When I say AAs are the same all over the world, I mean that from personal experience, because over the past few years, I've had the, been asked to come and speak in some exotic places like Cape Town, South Africa, and Johannesburg, and Durban, and Berlin, and Paris, and London, and all over Ireland, and Amsterdam, and... Uh, Earlier this year, I spent a week going from city to city in Australia for the anniversary of AA, New Zealand, Tahiti, a lot of places, all over Mexico and Canada. And uh, you know, I go on an airplane. In fact, when I when you go to, I've been to Paris on the SST, which is an experience a lot of people haven't had. But I don't know if you, you know that that's the supersonic transport. You, it's only kind of hard to understand. It's only about four seats wide, with one aisle, two seats, very lush seats on either side. It's a long, long plane. And you get on the plane, and there's a big dial in the bulkhead. And you take off, and the dial goes to about 1.30, about where 1.30 would be. And you circle over, get on the over the ocean. Then all of a sudden, that dial starts to move. And it goes around, and pretty soon, when it gets to 12, you're at the speed of sound. And then it keeps going. 
and you're way up high, 45, 50,000 feet, so you can see the curve of the earth. The sky is black. You think, Jesus, we're moving, baby. You know? <laughs> and the only problem is when you land, you figure, I hope we got good brakes on this some bitch. You know, we're going <laughs> to be in Belgium somewhere. But of course, that's just a joke because they don't use brakes on the SST or they don't use brakes on the jet I came in on here yesterday, which incidentally, they lost my luggage. I just read my 12 and 12 and still didn't come. <laughs> Three o'clock this morning, while all decent people were sleeping, they finally brought it. But anyway, otherwise I wouldn't have looked so well tonight. <laughs> I would have had my Ohio State tie that was tied around my bag. Uh, I don't know why. I Take that out of the tape, will you, Dick? But anyway, but you know, planes, you know, how planes stop. They take the same jets that push you this way and they reverse the thrust of the jets. So the very same jets that move you this way, the speed of sound, now stop you. And I look over my life in AA, and people like me. I know there are many people who... I was thinking today when the young man was speaking this afternoon, he's, and I've heard many people like that, and I really admire that. He said, my sponsor had enough sense not to tell me what to do. And he, told, he, he didn't tell his children what to do. And that worked so well for many people. But for me, I, it seemed I had to be told what to do. And I had the people I get to work with are people who need to be told what to do. Because I was not here for rehabilitation. I was here for habilitation. I wasn't returning to anything. I didn't have nothing going in my, in my ability to cope with the world. But anyway, it would seem to me the ideal thing for people like me, if someone could take that pain, that desperation that makes me suicidal and allow someone to change the thrust of it to get me to use it to take actions that I would never take for love or God or mother or anybody else. Just desperation. And that's what it should work, except for one thing. When you're in that mood, that desperation... You can't trust anybody enough to do that. You can't give them the ability to run your life. So you're, I know you mean well, pal, but you can't possibly know all the things that I know about me. And so I look back now and I think one of the great things that helped me was I was thrust. You know, I look back at those fanatics in that club. I would not call them fanatics now. I would call them AA winners. If you're new, they say stick with the winners. But who are the winners? That's the big question. Is it the fun people? Sometimes. Is it the oldest timers? Sometimes. And sometimes it isn't. I know old timers that I just say hello to and keep walking because they are depressing old fools are what they are. <laughs> I respect their sobriety. I never say a word against them. But they got, they got nothing to tell me. Whatever they, whatever they had, they left it behind somewhere. <laughs> I'll tell you who the winners are, in my opinion. They are the people who are currently active in Alcoholics Anonymous who are going to meetings, who are trying to extend their hand from time to time, who are in their sometimes weak and fallible and almost laughably naive way attempting to serve God and man. In whatever, at least they're trying. They are the winners to me. And conversely, they say, stick away, stay away from the losers. Who are the losers? Well, the losers are the people, sometimes they're the most fun people. Sometimes they're the ones that just the most laughter at first. And say, oh boy, that must be good people. I'll tell you how, who the losers are. They are the people who hang around and tell you, you don't have to do all that crap. And they kill people. 
And I did it myself a few years, and I'm sure I've killed people by using my persuasion to persuade people that it was corny to do that AA crap. Well, you stick with the winners. Why? Because the winners are activists. They're involved as a rule. They usually are sponsored. They are sponsor, and they are activists. And to me, my early days, they saved my life. I would be standing in that club thinking, God, I've lost my children. I'll... I loved them. I, I couldn't, sometimes it made me very nervous to be around them, but I, I loved them, and I, I, I wish I could be with them and see little kids. And I'd get so sad. I'd just, oh, God, what's this? Come on, we're all going to the meeting. Hop in the car, Clancy. <laughs> I could be thinking about my career. God, they, people used to give me pats on the head. The brightest young man they'd ever seen. I was just, I was going to eat up the world. Then I can't even get a job as a dishwasher. Just, what the hell are I? God almighty. Come on, we're going to help. help guy move his furniture. Come on. Yes, <laughs> And on and on, always some goddamn thing. No, I never got a chance to really get into a mood, you know. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I forgot this for a long time. After about two weeks, I was so, one night I was feeling so eager, it went away quickly, I'll tell you, but I had a newcomer sleeping in the front seat of my abandoned car. <laughs> he didn't make it, I'm sorry to say. But, and I, they kept me sober with all this crap. But they could tell you one about, oh, that's just activity. That's what it's about. It gets your head out of yourself briefly. And then they'll get to the next stage, which is one of the worst stages. You know, get a sponsor. Get a sponsor. Oh, man, I had sponsors. A lot of them. You know, I don't want to get a sponsor. If you're a slipper, you don't want to get a sponsor. You go to a town, find the most important AA in that town, ask him to be your sponsor, then stay away from him. Now, why would you do that? For a very simple reason. You walk into a meeting, somebody says, who's your sponsor? Chuck Chamberlain. Oh. <laughs> Sit here, I'll get you some coffee. Thanks. <laughs> so I saw this, this actor came in this club, and he was, a, he was a, a movie actor. Not a star, but one of those guys, you all see the background of all those movies. You always know their faces better than you know the stars. You never know their names. I said, Bob, would you be my sponsor? He said, sure, kid. If you do what I say, yeah, sure, Bob. <laughs> and I thought, I'll stay away from this puke and I'll tell him to be my sponsor. But turned out I was trapped in that club. He always knew where to find me. I had no place to go. He had just like, I was in a cage in a zoo and he'd nail me. And, you know, and he always played these loving roles in the movies. And I used to think he should have won the Academy Award for every one of those roles because they were foreign to his nature, I'll tell you. <laughs> He was a, turned out to be a cruel, right-wing, fascist AA pig. <laughs> he just, do this, do that. <laughs> After a few days, I went for one day, I said, Bob, you know, I don't think you really understand, you know. I'm not like these newcomers. I've read the AA book. I've been around AA for t almost 10 years. I, I've known a lot of big shots in AA. I've, in my opinion, AA is very good for many people, but in my judgment, AA doesn't work for people like me. It's, I need something more intense or deeper, it's more psychological or in, intellectual. In my judgment, I, it isn't enough. And he explained that to me. He said, in your judgment? Who cares about your judgment? You live in an abandoned car, for Christ's sake. <laughs> if I wanted your judgment, I'd put my head in the back window and ask you for it. <laughs> yeah, terrible, terrible. I remember some guy overheard him abusing me once and says, 
Why you just quit? You, he can't do that to you if you just quit him as your sponsor. Tell him to go screw himself. And he intimidated me terribly. I remember going up to him saying, Bob, now what? <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> That's a terrible way to live. And he intimidated me, made me do things that were stupid. In the middle of a meeting at the coffee break, at Frank Randall group one night, see that woman over there? I want you to apologize to her. I said, why? I've been told you called her a bitch. <laughs> Never get a sponsor that has spies everywhere. <laughs> I said, well, Bob, she is a bitch. He said, nobody cares what you think. You're a loser. Apologize. And I looked at her, and she could hear all this. And she was going... And I thought, I'd rather have needles stuck in my eyes. I said, Bob, I just can't. He said, shut up. Do it. Be a man. <laughs> Sorry. You bitch. Why don't you go to that Tuesday night meeting? Oh, Jesus, Bob. Not, not the Central Hollywood meeting. That's a terrible meeting, full of weirdos, Bob. Some of the men there dress like women. Some of the women dress like men. There's a guy in there in an Arab outfit, the Bernouse. The guy that plays Dracula in the movies goes to that meeting. Because if you doze off, you'll suck blood out of your neck. Bob, it's all weirdos. You'll fit right in. <laughs> and on and on and on. It made me do stupid things and intimidate me and hurt me. And Every once in a while, he'd throw in some AA action I didn't know about. And, uh, he had me do things, and little by little. Okay, uh, six months sober, I was still sober. Most of my spread got jobs as a dishwasher, got fired, decided to kill myself that day. I called him up, say goodbye. You know, I tried to be decent. Uh, just, I got fired as a dishwasher, Bob. I, I just can't go on. I, I want to thank, thank you for your efforts. I just, you know what I mean? What about what could I possibly do? Said, Why don't you write your damn inventory the way I told you? And we'd just gone through this a week before that. I said, I said, I've had my inventory with a psychiatrist. Why do I want to do an out-of-work actor? What good is that going to do for me? I made him mad. He got me so upset that day I came out of that phone booth that I made it to the A Club in three steps, a mile and a half. I was so upset I wrote things down I'd never told anybody, you know. Never told my psychiatrist, certainly. They say, why would you tell your psychiatrist? Very simple. When you're paying that kind of dough, you can't risk rejection. That's why. <laughs> you did what? Get out of my office and wipe off that chair with a disinfectant. <laughs> and a week later, he took me for a ride along the ocean to Oxnard. He gave me a flashlight and some paper. And I read this to him. I thought, oh, God, he's going to make me get out of the car. But we got there, and he was yawning. I thought, poor old man, he's gone over the edge. But I've taken that trip over 200 times since then on the driver's side with some other boob over there with a flashlight. Keith, Nancy, other people. And they, uh, you know, it really is almost humorous how similar inventories are. There's nothing to be afraid of an inventory except to the person taking it because there's nothing you can do or think that hasn't been thought and done again and again and again. There's only so many things you can do with your mind and body. But to the person taking it, he knows it's unnatural and weird, or she knows that. And it gets almost boring. When I get to Oxnard now, I, 
I'm not like my sponsor. I turn my head before I yawn. <laughs> the only time, only time your, my ears perk up anymore at all is when you hear something, somebody say something like this. Oh, let me explain this part before I read it. <laughs> but I was thinking about our speaker today. He, he made me, uh, later on, he made me... Do amends. He made me make amends to my father, a man that I sh- was sure had ruined my life, and I hated him. And in psychoanalysis, I'd learned how he had victimized me, and I wanted to kill him. And he made me make amends to him. And uh, so I wrote him a letter, and he, he look at the poor little orphan child. <laughs> Time to get back to the home, Annie. But he, he said the terrible thing. If you're a sponsor, I'd suggest you do this. I don't know if your sponsor made you do this. He said, when you write that letter of amends, I want to see it before you send it. So I gave it to him. He said, no, no. I said, a letter of amends, not an indictment. And he tore it up. <laughs> but the third version, and he had me write him a Father's Day card and all this crap, like very much like you had talked about today. And over a period of time, we got back and forth a little by little. I didn't much like him, but... Uh, Went back to see my mother in that town. I went over to see him, and I didn't want to see him because I hated his wife, my stepmother. But I sat down and tried to be pleasant. And I was about four or five years sober. My family moved back from Texas. And they were there, and they just moved in. And God, I was so excited about this. But all of a sudden, after a few days, I'd been living in a nice apartment quietly and getting sympathy. And all of a sudden, here's kids all over and dogs barking and cats crawling up the curtains and noise and screaming and <laughs> can't get in the bathroom and I loved it but Jesus Christ and my father called me and said my wife died do you think you could possibly come back and help me see this through because you're the only child I've got and I've often thought if my family hadn't been there I probably would have said no dad now you know how it feels but all of this just then a cat and a dog shot by <laughs> Yes, I'll be right up, Dad. <laughs> now we sat through. The point of it is that the night after the funeral, we sat up all. Somehow got talking, and somehow we got talking about how how our relationship over the years had looked to him, and he could never understand why I was the way I was. Because he pointed out, "Gee, in the 1930s, we were poor, but I worked two jobs so you could have a bicycle, and you just took it for granted." It seemed to me. I didn't ask you to say thank you, but I thought maybe. And then when your mother and I got divorced by mutual consent. You acted as though it was my fault, and you never talked to me and treated me badly. And I tried to help you and your wife after the war, and you ridiculed me. And I held out my hand again and again and tried to help you, and you just treated me. I, what did I do so wrong, son? I, I, I've always loved you. And I tell you, it blew me away. And I, I got talking to how it looked to me, and he cried. And we got to be good friends after that, maybe for the next, probably about 20 years, when he and I were the closest fathers and son I knew. Remember, Keith, you know him. He came out and lived at our house for a while when he was old, and then he's going to get ready to die, so we want to get back to Wisconsin and be like the old elephant, go to the elephant burial ground. And He's dying, and I held his hand. He smiled and said, goodbye, son. I said, bye, Dad. And I've often thought about that. In a sense, that is a microcosm of Alcoholics Anonymous, what it's all about, to take the same thing and make it look differently. Based on my psychoanalysis and everything I knew intellectually, if you'd come up to me and say, tell me about your relationship with your father, I'd say, my father was a rotten son of a bitch. I hope he's dead. I hope he's in hell. I hope he's in a lake of fire. And I hope he's just screaming in agony because he ruined my life and he ruined my mother's life and he ruined my children and he ruined everything about him. I hope he's dead in pain. 
But now based on what I did in AA, he would come up to me and say, how was your, tell me about your relationship with your father. I'd say, well, my dad and I really kind of drifted apart through nobody's fault. This is a bunch of strange things. And thank God we got to recognize each other one more time. And my father was a kindly good man. He did the best he could for me. I didn't always understand it, but he was doing the best he knew how. And I hope I will always do as well, trying to do. And I'm glad that he and I were so close. And I hope, now that he's dead, I hope he's in Valhalla, the Norwegian big feasting place in heaven somewhere and drinking mead and having a good time because he was a wonderful man. Now, in a real sense, that's what A is about, to take the same facts and make them look differently. That's why they call it the disease of perception. And I did a lot of other things. Over the years, things went along. And pretty soon, I was, my life changed. I got jobs, and I held jobs, and I got successful in radio and television again and, uh, and corporations. And, and over the years, I had my wife and I reunited nine months and ten seconds later, another Catholic hit the street. Just, just. <laughs> Somebody bought me a metronome then, and I tuned into the rhythm system. Now it doesn't make any difference at all. <laughs> I have my memories, huh? Yeah. But, and then I was 15 years sober. Was, that same old thing kicked in, that terrible job error. I found myself leaving a job in Beverly Hills. And for the last 23 years, I run the Midnight Mission on Skid Row, the place that threw me out in 1958. And people say, why would you give up this great career that you're getting together little by little between intermittent job problems to, to run a mission on Skid Row? I, I tried to explain to them. It was, it was such a significant decrease in salary, I thought it must be spiritual. But it wasn't. But that's what I do every day now. And I, you think, isn't that a wonderful thing, that nice man give, going down to the mission helping me? I don't, some days I don't want to go down there at all. I, my car wants to get off at Robertson Boulevard. I've got to fight it in Beverly Hills and go to my office that used to be there, and a girl, in, a pretty blonde girl with tight sweaters would say, here's your coffee, Mr. Immeslin. <laughs> I don't want to go down to Skid Row and see who died last night smashing their head into the sidewalk. And who. It's not a treatment center, way below that. Just try to keep people alive. And it's the new, the new curse of Skid Row, illegal aliens knifing people because they're so afraid they don't speak English and so you threaten them, they knife you. And it's terrible. It's just all sorts of things going on. And, and now cocaine, crack, is Skid Row. Skid Row used to be looked bad, full of old drunks, but now about two-thirds of it is young crack addicts. And they're, they will kill you to get if they have to do it. It really is a frightening place. I, I've been the, I'm the longest-serving person on Skid Row anywhere in any of the facilities in Skid Row. And I walk through the streets and, and I think, I'm suddenly struck me, you know, I'm kind of a legend down here. And suddenly struck me, some of these little shits don't know I'm a legend. You know, I might, you know. <laughs> so I bring my gang. But it's an amazing thing, you know. And I, I just don't want to go there. It's Monday morning, I'll go down there, there's going to be a bad weekend. But it's the funny thing, when I go home at night, I, uh, I always seem to have a little better feeling going down the Santa Monica Freeway, going west out to the ocean where I live, than I ever did going in those, down those elevators in Beverly Hills, popping my fingers and being slick and cool. Now, if you're kind of new tonight, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Even if you go to meetings, even if you get a sponsor, even if over a period of time you take the steps of AA, we can't guarantee you that in 15 years you can have your own mission. You know, <laughs> there's only so many to go around. 
I've got mine, and that's for you. But we can guarantee you that you may walk with a degree of dignity. The most important thing I got in there, I discovered I was an alcoholic. It took me a while to do that. So how could I be an alcoholic when my problem really isn't alcohol? And it turned out uh, that's correct. It really isn't alcohol. It is something called alcoholism. If it were alcohol, getting sober would make it better. In alcoholism, you discover getting sober makes it worse. That's what AA is about. Not to help your drinking problem, but to make sobriety eventually bearable and eventually tenable and one day preferable to drinking. Who could believe it, for God's sakes? I came to little by little come to believe in a loving God after a long time. I believed in my sponsors, my higher power. Because if God existed, I was going to go to hell. But I came to believe in God. I believe today that God loves me. I believe he loves me as much as you and no less than no more. When I get out of my car in the morning and I step over the bodies of dying men and women on the sidewalk to go to my office, I believe that God's grace falls on them exactly as it falls on me. It's just that I was fortunate enough and desperate enough to try to do something about it and allow it to get through. Most of the people who have alcoholism, it's estimated in America today, 95% of people about still, alcoholics still die drunk. There's a direct result of drinking. And they die convinced there's no help. They say, but I'm not really an alcoholic. My problems came when I was sober. I just drank to get some relief. They don't realize they've just defined the disease of alcoholism. And that's why they ask people like you and me, if you're sober two weeks, or if you're sober 20 years, or if you're sober 31 years, or whatever you're sober. You've got to try to be a winner here. You've got to, in your halting, feeble way, try to be of service to God and man. Because that is, the, that is the recipe to get out of self, to get into the world. Not to be a wonderful success. I'm not a wonderful success. But I sleep well at night, and I get up with a feeling good in the morning, and I live pretty much at peace with the world around me. And I can't think of anything more important than that. It's an amazing thing. Sometimes big movie stars in their Mercedes-Benz come down to the midnight mission. My staff can't understand it. They're in my office asking me how to be comfortable because they've got everything anybody could want, and they can't live comfortably, and they're just suicidal. And I've sponsored the guy that put the flag on the moon and all sorts of people. Keith's second birthday. We sat over in the San Fernando Valley. We couldn't go to the meeting because he had to wait till the guy got off the lunar vehicle and got on the... And all this is very nice, but the number one thing is this. Alcoholics Anonymous is the same thing tonight in Columbus, Ohio, as it was in Akron, Ohio, on June 10th, 1935. It isn't this book. It isn't these meetings. It isn't love. It isn't spirituality. It isn't God. All of these things are extremely valuable sidelights to AA and invaluable assists. But AA for you and me is always this. One alcoholic talking to another alcoholic to help him reduce his feelings of difference at least enough so that he will begin to take actions he does not yet believe in. And when that day comes, the miracle starts. Thank you.